It's a message for Ryan as we get ready for the musical chairs thing. <laughs> Breaking through fear. The crying factored in last year. <laughs> when you send me softballs, I just got to knock them out of the park. No. The sad thing is actually, well, I may or may not be in attendance for musical chairs. We'll have to see. Keep you in suspense. So, but as you've heard, we are starting a new sermon series here today. Uh, one that's called Breaking Through. And we're going to be looking at the first couple chapters of the book of Joshua. And if you're familiar with that uh, section of scripture, you'll, you'll recall that it's a historical account of the Israelites who have been wandering in the wilderness for a generation now. And they're at that point where they're about to break through into the promised land. This, this is in fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham like, like 600 years earlier. And it's an exciting time for the nation, obviously, because this has been a long time in the coming. And for those who had wandered for a generation now find themselves on the verge of the promised land, as we can anticipate, it was probably an exciting time that also brought with it this sense of arrival. Oh, finally we've arrived at the promised land. But the reality was, as we read through the book of Joshua, that this was no time for them to kick back and relax. They sure, they had in the past covered a lot of ground. They had had a lot of significant victories. They had overcome challenges. They had seen God move in powerful ways. But now as they looked to the future, there was still more work yet to be done. There were new breakthroughs for them to go and experience. Therefore, God calls Joshua and the nation to come together. And as they come together, he tells them to be strong and to be courageous, trusting that he would still continue to be with them and he would never leave them. But the question that hangs in the air at this time as the book of Joshua opens is how are they going to respond? How are the Israelites going to respond? Will they perhaps repeat the failures of the previous generation? Will they allow fear to keep them from succeeding? Or will they finally break through, remembering and celebrating the past victories and successes and faithfulness, but choosing to no longer be defined by past failures with their eyes set to the future? You know, as we enter into a new year, as we here at West Meadows into a new season of ministry, a new financial freedom, as we enter into this new time of visioning for the church, it's as though we could look back and say, you know, we find ourselves right now at a point of, of breaking through as well. But like the Israelites, we certainly have not arrived yet at the fulfillment of God's will for our church. There is much to be celebrated and we never want to forget God's past faithfulness and, and the provision he's provided to us in the past. We never want to forget, and we want to make sure we honor the sacrifices and the faithfulness of those who have gone on before us. But we also have this opportunity to, to look to the future. We have this opportunity to choose to no longer to be defined by the past, but rather by the future that God is calling us to. And I can promise you this, that, that there will be struggles, there will be challenges in the days ahead. There will be some tough decisions that we collectively as a congregation need to make because there's work yet to be done. But if we will remain strong and courageous in the Lord who has brought us this far, I have this unwavering belief that we will break through into even greater days ahead of us. Even greater days ahead of us. Now here's the thing about breakthroughs. Breakthroughs 
show up in different ways in our lives. And they can be defined by different things, but one thing they have in common is that they're these dramatic discoveries, these, these dramatic developments where when we encounter them, it leaves us with the thought of, my life will never be the same again. All of us have experienced these. We've all experienced breakthroughs in different ways. Our lives have been impacted by things that have changed in the world around us. For example, we experience relational breakthroughs. Perhaps you finally need that special someone. Maybe you break through into becoming a parent or you break through into becoming a grandparent. It's this new season where your life will never be the same again. We have breakthroughs and achievements. You get accepted to the college of your choice. You, you graduate with the degree that you've worked hard for. You get a promotion. You can break through into a season of retirement. Then we can also think of these scientific breakthroughs that have changed our world and changed our lives. How different is our world because of things like electricity, uh, gunpowder, the radio, television, uh, combustible engines, the printing press. These have revolutionized our world and our lives. You know, just yesterday, for a medical breakthrough, like Nadine went and got that LASIK eye surgery done. Because everybody had that done. That's an amazing thing. In a matter of a couple of minutes in this doctor's office, she no longer needs glasses for the rest of her life because of this procedure. Incredible breakthroughs that change your life. Now, at times, breakthroughs are the result of these, these long, committed efforts. But sometimes they happen accidentally as well. For example, one of the greatest breakthroughs was an accidental breakthrough, the discovery of penicillin. Penicillin, which was discovered in a Petri dish that a scientist had left uncovered and discarded for a number of days. And then when he happened upon it again, he noticed that this mold that was growing in the middle of the Petri dish seemed to have this bacteria-resistant ring around it. And so he did further research and grew it on its own and isolated that, that, that mold and discovered penicillin, which was then mass-produced, and as we know, it is used to cure and to heal us from countless diseases. This happened back around 1900, and in just over a century now, the death rate from infectious diseases has down to 120th what it was before penicillin existed. Totally changed our world. But perhaps the greatest accidental invention, the accidental breakthrough that has changed our lives the most would have to be the potato chip that actually happened. It was. Back in 1853... Chef George Crumb in New York was frustrated with a customer who kept sending back his soggy french fries. And so he thought, well, I'll teach this guy a lesson. I'm going to cut these extra thin. I'm going to cook them to a crisp. I'm going to cover them in so much salt, and I'm going to send those out and see what the guy thinks. Well, he loved them. <laughs> he loved them, and the french fry was put to the side as the potato chip came to the forefront. And the world and our waistlines were never the same again after that day. Accidental breakthroughs. Here's one more thing I know about breakthroughs. Breakthroughs have an enemy. You know what the greatest enemy of a breakthrough is? It's fear. Fear is the enemy of breakthroughs. Because fear causes people to freeze. It causes them to retreat, to become defensive. Fear causes people to dig in their heels and, and halt all momentum. Fear causes people to start pointing out all of the, the negatives, the challenges of a situation or of a product. And fear can cause division amongst a group of people. You know what? This was not the first time the Israelites were on the verge of a breakthrough. They had found this, their point at this moment about to cross the promised land of time earlier. And fear crept into camp. Fear crept into camp and halted their momentum. 
That's what happened last time they found themselves there. That's what happens a lot of times when people groups and, and churches find themselves on the verge of breakthroughs. They allow fear to creep into the camp. And it halts progress. It halts momentum. And so as Joshua, the book of Joshua opens, that's where we find the Israelis now, these Israelites. We find them camped on the east side of the Jordan with their eyes pointed once again to this breakthrough in their new home. Now for Joshua, and I'm sure some other people who were there with him, their minds went back to replay that scene from 40 years earlier when they stood on the brink the first time. And he recalled that Moses had ordered 12 men to go into that land to explore it and to bring back an account, to tell us about the land that God has promised for us. Tell us about this breakthrough we're about to experience. And they come back after exploring the land and they, and they report to the leaders. They, they say, man, we went to that land which you sent us and oh, it does flow with milk and honey. It's amazing. We've been wandering in the desert for this long time. Look at this fruit, this luscious fruit we brought back with us. It is an amazing land. But, but here's the thing about it. There, there's also a lot of people there, and they live in these huge fortified cities, and, 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 and they're fierce, and they're, they're like giants, these people that are in there. So we've got these giant people with these giant fortified cities, and we can't attack them. They're stronger than we are. And so they start to spread a bad report amongst the Israelites about this land that they're about to break through into. And it creates fear. It creates division. And all progress that they had to that moment comes to a screeching halt. But among those who had gone in to explore the land are Joshua and Caleb, who offer a different view, offer a view prompted by faith. And so they report, they silence the guys down. They say, shh, shh, quiet, quiet. No, just listen for a second. Guys, we can take this land, and we can do it now. Surely we can do it, because God is with us. And so they plead for this chance to go and allow God to exercise his power in the fear that they're feeling, but fear of the challenges that's ahead of them, fear of the sacrifices it will cost them, rules the day rather than faith. And the people are sentenced to wander the wilderness until the next generation has an opportunity. And that's where Joshua now finds himself. In this situation, again, with the next generation, the next opportunity, 40 years later, but this time, before anybody can say anything, God speaks first. God speaks first as the book of Joshua opens. And God says to Joshua, Moses has died. Now I need you to get these people ready to cross the Jordan. As I established with Abraham and as I promised to Moses, I'm giving them this land. This land is a gift I'm giving to them from the desert in the south to Lebanon in the north, from Euphrates in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. It is to be theirs. I'm giving it to them. But, but Joshua, there's, there's still powerful people there. There's still large cities. There are still challenges. You know what? Those fortified cities are even more fortified than they were 40 years ago. There are still challenges ahead of you. There is still work to be done ahead of you. But remember this. Joshua, remember this. Remind the people of this. That no one will be able to stand against you. Because just as I was with Moses, I am with you. No one will stand against you because I am with you. Now Joshua was the right guy for the job. He was the right guy for this time, for this place, and for this calling you see, he had been selected and groomed for this day. He was born a slave in Egypt. 
He grew up as a slave, and then as a young man, he saw that time when Moses walked into Pharaoh's courts and, and commanded that he let God's people go. Joshua was alive when the plagues hit Egypt. He was there when Pharaoh finally relented and they walked out those gates in the Exodus. Joshua walked across the Red Sea on dry land. He witnessed God's protection and provision in the wilderness. He had fought in the battles to defend the nation and to propel their mission towards the promised land. And in faith, he believed that when they arrived there, they could do it. They could take it. He had been itching for this opportunity for 40 years. And because of all of this, he rose to be the trusted assistant of Moses who was publicly commissioned as the successor when the time came. And so the people were not curious or wondering who was next in line. They knew Joshua was next in line. That had been publicly commissioned. That was shown to them. And they knew him and they knew the qualifications. The qualifications, faith and obedience. Faith and obedience is what Joshua showed. Those were the qualifications that made him the one who would succeed Moses and lead the nation into the promised land. So after Moses dies... They mourn his passing. And then no one is surprised when Joshua gets a tap on the shoulder. Now is your time. This is your day. And that's got to be a tough thing. Because it's one thing to, to think about that day when you'll be leading. But it's a whole other thing to actually do it. Thinking about it and doing it, those are two totally different things. Like maybe you've experienced that in your life when perhaps you were a player on a team and then you became the captain. Or you were an employee and then you became the manager. Or you were maybe a volunteer in the church and, and then you got moved up to, to a staff position or to a pastor or to a, a higher level of responsibility overseeing a team of volunteers in the church. You know, sometimes as you're in that situation, you, you, you work under their supervision, you work under the decision of a manager or a volunteer who's over you, and you agree with what's going on, you like it, you, you're thinking, this is, this is fantastic, I'm on board with this guy. Other times you're thinking, this guy hasn't got a clue. I know what I'd do if I was there. I'd turn this place around if I was in charge. Right? This guy's just a dummy. He doesn't know what he's doing. Wait till I'm the boss, right? But then that day comes and you get promoted. And now things just got real. Because now you are in that position. And it's not as easy as you first thought it was going to be when you're able to just think about it. Now you actually need to do it and own it. And the burden of leadership responsibility is heavy upon your shoulders. And it's not long until you start to feel that sense of, Fear. Fear comes in. I think that's why the next thing God says is so important. The next thing God says to Joshua, Joshua, I need you to be strong and courageous. In fact, in this short little section of Scripture, he says it three times, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. He says to Joshua, he reminds him and all of the people, guys, as I was with you in that time in Egypt, as I was with you in the wilderness, as I've been with you this entire past generation, I am still with you today. You're not alone. You never have been. If you look to your left, I am there. If you look to your right, I am there. If you look behind me, those are my fingerprints you see on your past. And if you will look to the future that I'm calling you towards, you will find my strength, you will find my courage, and I will help you to break through into this future. Because I am with you. I have never left you. I have never forsaken you. Be strong and be courageous. I think there's a lesson in there for us today. I, based upon what's happening here in our church, but also what's maybe happening in your own personal life. Maybe what's happening in your home or in, in your work environment. There's a message in here for us. 
that as we look to these moments of breakthrough, I think the lesson is this. In the days ahead, if fear should appear, find strength and courage in God who is near. Now, it's a lot of rhyming for no groaning. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. If fear should appear, find strength and courage in God who is near. Remember that. Fear will appear, but God is near. He always has been, and he always will be. You see, fear is the enemy of breaking through. And time and time again, that's what caused the Israelites to stumble. From the moment God secured his promise with them, he never deviated from it. He was firmly committed to what their purpose and what their future was. From the time God established this church, from the time he made a promise to, to be with us in the days ahead as he has for decades, he has never deviated from it. But when the people of the Israelites allowed fear to creep into camp, that's when things went off the rails. Now, if that's the history they have, and if that's the experience they have from the past, and God is now coming to them saying, you need strength and you need courage, it's safe to assume that there's things that they need to guard against. He's doing this pre proactively. He's, he's trying to preempt any sort of fear or discouragement that could creep into camp, things they need to guard against. But what do they need to guard against? What do they have to fear? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I, I wouldn't be surprised, first of all, if, if they were worried about their ability to conquer the land before them. Like from a human standpoint, this was a huge task, if not an impossible task. Basically, up to this point, they had been reduced to wandering nomadic herders. Wandering nomadic herders who were now asked to go conquer a land. They, they didn't have the military technology and, and techniques and all the resources needed for that. This land was vast. Its people were huge and numerous. The cities were large and fortified. I could understand if they know that that's what's ahead of them and their anxiety level just kind of cranked up a notch or two. But secondly, I wonder if Joshua himself had concerns about his own ability to lead them through this. Like he was in this training time under Moses, but, but there was no probation period as a leader. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to make you the leader, and we're going to revisit this in 30 days and see how you're doing. We'll find your strengths, we'll find your weaknesses, and then we'll bring in a, a consultant to help you overcome those challenges, and you'll slowly grow into the lead. That wasn't how it happened. Day one, Joshua goes in the office. Let's see what's in my calendar for today. Okay, take the promised land and fulfill God's 600-year promise. All right, well, let's get on that then. Day one. See, the challenges ahead of him were massive. Probably even greater than some of the things that Moses had faced. And Joshua knew the only reason Moses was able to do what he did was because of the presence of God with him. And so I think that's part of the reason. The main reason God is so committed to reassuring Joshua, I am with you. It's not about you. I am with you. I will walk through this with you. I will lead you, guide you, and protect you. But then thirdly, I think there was also fear of the nation's ability to remain faithful and united. Because as we've talked about, fear has this ability to divide. Fear has this ability to halt momentum. And that was a big part of their past. So there's this fear about their ability to remain faithful and united. You see, thus far in their history, it's a mixed bag of events and responses. They had had some important victories. They, they had times of incredible faith. They had times of experiencing this incredible blessings of God. But they also had times of rebellion and grumbling and infighting had also happened. And now this new generation comes forth. 
stands on the edge of the breakthrough again. And the question is, will they continue their parents' bad habits or will they stand strong? Which is it going to be? And as we look to the future, we would be wise to heed these fear points as well in our own community. There's a big task ahead of us. As you drove in today, you drove in through a community that does not know the difference that Jesus makes in their lives. You drove past people walking down the streets and driving down the roads who don't know that life is better with Jesus than without. And if we're going to be successful in sharing that good news, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us resources. It's going to cost you some comfort zones. But secondly, how will we collectively handle these tough decisions that come up? Collectively handle the changes that will be happening in the future. Will we allow fear to halt progress? Will we retreat within ourselves, within the walls? Say, I I don't want change. Lock the doors and retreat within the walls. Will we pine for the good old days of Egypt that weren't so good? Or will we stand together? Will we continue to give, continue to volunteer, continue to love and support everybody under the banner of unity? But there's also that fear point for the leaders of the church. You know, as a lead pastor, I'm not immune to any of this. I so wish that when they put that title of lead pastor on you that you would just sort of start to glow and be immune to fear and temptation. But that's the exact opposite of what happens. Still immune to everything that is common to man. But I try to remember this when fear comes in. I remember back to a time when I was moving from being a ministry assistant to being a pastor. And I had this one mentor who was working with me who would come to me every couple weeks, every couple months, and he'd say, are you you nervous? Are you you scared? And for the longest time, I'm like, nah, I got this. I got this. I'm good. I can handle it. And he'd just kind of smile and nod, and he'd go away. And a while later, he'd come back, a few weeks, two months later, and he'd go, how you doing? Are you nervous? Are you scared? And the day came when, when I finally said, Dennis, yeah. I am scared. And he said, good. That means you're ready. Because that means you have reached the end of yourself. You've reached the end of your ability. You've reached the end of what you know. You've reached the end of what you've experienced. And you've come to that place when you have nothing but God. Now you're ready. And those words of Paul come to mind when he says, when I am weak, it is then that I am strong. When I reach the end of myself, I become strong because it's then that I know that the God who is with me, that I need him to be with me. I need to trust in him. I need to allow him to be my strength and my courage. And it is only then that I know and can find that lasting strength and courage that is only found in God. It's found in God alone. So in the days ahead, when we're breaking through into the future, if fear should appear, Find strength and courage in God who is near. Now here's something about this. If we keep reading into verse 7 and 8 in Joshua chapter 1, God opens in this fashion, but, but then he adds this curious connection to it. See, in the next breath, without missing a beat, God connects his strength and his courage with our commitment to his law. Almost as though it's conditional. 
almost as though it's conditional for those two things to be connected. Here's what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you, may, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep the book of the law always upon your lips. Meditate on it day and night, and then you will be prosperous and successful. Keep this book of the law always upon your lips. Meditate on it day and night, and then you will be prosperous and successful. This book of the law. You know, as Christians, when we hear that word law, we, we tend to be quick to, to want to go and find an ability to replace that with grace. Because of passages, for example, like Romans 6.14, where it says you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. And so at times we get this feeling like law and grace are on, in contrast to each other. Like they can't coexist in the same room. And so we hear law, we go, no, 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 law, I'm under grace. And we substitute those two things. Because when we hear the word grace, it makes us think about relationship. It makes us think about the New Testament, where we hear law, it makes us think about rules and policies and obligations in the, in the Old Testament. Like the law is a list of do's and don'ts, a list of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's. We hear the word law, it reminds us of these Pharisees with their rigid, toe-the-line policies that were always in conflict with Jesus, it seems. But that's not really the perception of law we find in the Old Testament. You see, if you look in the Old Testament and, and you examine what does it mean, what does the law look like, how do they respond to the law in the Old Testament, for example, even just looking at the book of Psalms, you find a completely different perspective. See, what does the Psalms say about the law? Well, the Psalms say that the law is regarded with delight. It's a source of wonder and grace. The law is a precious treasure. Have you ever found your policy manual at work and gone, oh, it's a precious treasure? It says the law is an object of devotion. The law is true, trustworthy. It's worthy of being studied and observed. It, it sums it all up in simply saying the law is loved. The law is not dangerous. It's not something to be avoided. Instead, it says the law is precious enough that it's to be taught to children. So what's the difference in these two approaches? Well, I think it comes down to a great expect to understanding the perspective towards this. You see, when ancient Israel heard the word law, they would think Torah, which could be the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, but, but also when they heard the word Torah, they didn't think legal code. They would think teaching and instruction, in particular teaching and instruction in how to live a way that is pleasing to God. So the context of this instruction was not the courtroom. The context of this instruction was the courting room. See, it was relational for them. The law that was how Israel learned about God's character. It's about how they learned of his loving devotion towards them. It's how they learned the benefits of being in relationship with him and how to grow that relationship, how to strengthen that bond. It's where they learned about his plans and his desires for them. It's where they learned about how to avoid the pitfalls that can destroy a person's life and can destroy community. It wasn't about duty and obligation. That's not the definition of law they had. It was not about duty and obligation. It was about relationship. So by connecting this idea of strength and courage that is found in God with knowing the law of God, it's like God is saying to them, I'm with you, but are you with me? I'm with you, 
It's available to you. I stretch this out to you. I offer you my strength and my courage. I offer to be with you, and I always will be. But in order for you to fully realize and understand and experience that, are you with me? Are you with me? God's invested in us. Are we invested in him? And so God reveals himself to us in Scripture, in that Bible that we have on our phones or on our shelves at home. God reveals himself to us in the Bible. He reveals to us how he's invested in us through the Scriptures. And the greatest investment that we find when we open the Bible is Jesus Christ, who because of Jesus... We are not under that old sacrificial system for the forgiveness of sins. We don't need to, to raise pigeons and goats and sheep in our backyards to take to the temple for sacrifices and then walk out the door and sin again and have to repeat the process over and over again. Because of Jesus, he was the spotless, innocent lamb who sacrificed himself once and for all upon the Christ the cross. And by this offering, we not only receive the eternal forgiveness for our sins, but it also becomes our gateway to relationship with God. Not by law, but by grace. We are saved through our faith in God's grace. But that doesn't mean that God has abolished the law. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. That's not what it was about. In fact, he kind of piggybacks upon this Old Testament command to invest in our relationship with God by knowing and obeying him. He, he kind of jumps on board with that as well when he says things like this in John 14. Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. And then my Father will love them and we will come to be with them and we will make our home with them. So even in Jesus' own words, he's not abolishing the law. He's saying, no, guys, we need, this is one of the basis the book of the law, the teachings of Jesus Christ, it's the basis for relationship. We need to know about each other. And the best place to learn about me, he's saying, is, is in my word, which is the written revelation of who I am, of what I long for, of my devotion for you, of what I long to do for you, of how I've been with you and long for you to be with me. That's where we find it. That's also why you hear us talk on a regular basis about the need that each of us has to find our space and our place. Our space and our place, that as little as 15 minutes a day to just open your Bibles, to spend in prayer, to spend time reflecting, to spend time even listening to some worship music. As little as 15 minutes a day to find your space and place. Now what do I mean by that? Let me unpack that for you for a second. What do I mean by finding your space? Well, there's this psychological phenomena that exists within our lives that we're all familiar with, where we associate physical spaces with, with feelings, with experiences, with encounters, with memories. And this, is, this is true for all of us. If you, if you go back to your hometown and you drive by, past your first elementary school, or if you, if you drive past the college you attended, it has a special place in your heart. If you drive past the church you got married at, if you go past the first company that you opened, if you go past the field where you won the championship game, when I go back to Prince George and I drive by this place of road where I had a very serious car accident when I was 18, there's still a feeling that comes upon me when I drive down that section of road. When you go to a gravesite, and that's where a loved one is buried. See, we have this, this ability, this, this natural thing that happens where we associate feelings, experiences, and actions with physical locations. 
So understanding that when we talk about finding your space, we're talking about finding that physical space that you can associate with spending time with God. That doesn't mean he only exists there. That doesn't mean that's the only place he exists. He is always with you. But it's about saying, you know what, there's, there's that office chair, there's that kitchen table, there's that lazy boy recliner, there's my car seat, there's, there's, there's that coffee shop. When I go by there, it triggers my mind, it triggers my memory, it makes me yearn for, long for, want to go and spend time with God there because that's my space that I've associated with God. And that's where we do our quiet time. We need to find our space for that. But what I mean by place? Well, here's what I mean by that. You see, that's a matter of finding our place in God's story. Because the Bible is essentially the story of God. That's where he reveals himself to us. It's also where we find the story of his desire for relationship with us. If we read through the pages of Scripture, we see that that's how relationship was established. We see how relationship was broken. But then we also see how relationship can be reestablished and maintained going forward. We find our place in God's story. So if you don't know God very well, but you want to, if you're yearning to know more about him, if you want to grow deeper in your faith, if you want to reestablish that connection, if you want to grow into the image of Christ, if you feel weak and need his strength, if you feel afraid and need his courage, if you are lost and you feel like you need to be found, or if you need to be guided through the fog of the life that has descended upon you, Find your space and place in God, who is always with you, who has revealed himself to you and desires for you to be with him as well. That's what we mean when we talk about finding your space and your place. Now, in the weeks ahead, as we continue to walk through the book of Joshua, we're going to see how all this plays out for the Israelites. We're going to see if they choose to remain faithful or not. But as I mentioned at the beginning, as we ourselves begin this series, as we begin a new year, as we begin a new season of ministry, as we begin a new chapter here at West Meadows, we have a similar choice before us. And the question that hangs in the air is, will we follow God faithfully into the promised land before us? Now, that promised land can be defined different ways. It might be defined for you as the surrounding community and neighborhoods that we have here with us. It might be defined as the workplace you go to, as the school you attend. It might even simply be the home that you were called to minister in. Anywhere can be the promised land if it's a place that you have been called to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a broken, hurting, lost world. That is the promised land. And just like Joshua, we have the assurance that God is with us. And it's found not just in Joshua chapter 1, but it's actually found in the words of Jesus himself. And the final words he spoke before he ascended into heaven, after he commissioned all who are followers of him to go in the world and to tell people about him. He told us to go and proclaim that life is better with Jesus than without. And to teach them how to enter into that relationship. To teach them how to grow in that relationship. And then he finished the passage by saying this, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's with us always. He's with us in ways that we can know and see. He's also with you even if you don't sense it or don't even know it. You know, there's this story I came across this week about a, an older lady and husband who had a son who moved from California to Michigan. 
And the plan was for, for the dad to go out and to help the son settle in and unload the moving truck in Michigan. And, and she was going to drive the son's car from California to Michigan, 4,000 kilometers, multiple days from California to Michigan and meet them there once the house is unpacked and they would just fly back home together. So the plan gets set in motion. She's home by herself for a few days and the day before she's about to leave on the trip, she falls and breaks her wrist. But she's a hearty lady, so she goes, I can still do this. So she jumps in the car and starts driving down the road. She just decides, I'll take it a little easier. I'll just drive a little less each day because of the pain in the wrist and the cast that goes from my elbow to my hand. Drive a little less, take it easy to stop when I need to. And so the trip gets stretched out a couple extra days. After about four days of driving, this one day she pulls over because she's tired and she takes a nap at a rest stop. And then she wakes up, she thinks, well, I'm a little behind. I should maybe go find a place where I can sit and make some phone calls and have a cup of coffee to finish waking up. So she drives a little further down the road, finds a restaurant, gets a cup of coffee, makes a few phone calls to let family know that she's still coming. And as she walks out of the restaurant, she starts heading back towards her vehicle, and this man goes walking up to her and goes, excuse me, are you driving the, uh, the white Ford Explorer with the Michigan plates? And so she's a little uncertain as to what's going on, and she cautiously goes, well, yeah. And this huge sense of relief comes over him. He excuses himself and says, wait for me just one moment. He comes back a few minutes later, and he goes, I'm so glad I found you. He said, I'm part of a group of truckers who have been following you this whole time. You see, as you left California, one of the truckers noticed that there's this little white-haired old lady who had a broken wrist driving stick shift cross-country. And so we decided that we would just follow you to make sure you were okay. And every time a trucker would have to pull off an exit, he'd radio ahead to the next one who would pick up her trail. When she stopped at a hotel for a night, they would mark what hotel she stopped at, and then they would wait for her to leave the next morning and pick up her course again. But when she pulled over for the nap, they lost, they lost her. They were worried about her, and they were about to call the state troopers to go find her when he happened upon her in this restaurant. So completely unbeknownst to her, somebody was watching over her, even though she wasn't aware. You know, there is so much for us to celebrate here at West Meadows, I believe that we have an even more exciting future ahead of us. There will be challenges, there will be dangers, there will be sacrifices that we need to make along the way. But we are never alone. We are never alone in that because God is with us. Even when we don't exactly see him in every moment, he has never left us nor forsake us. He is with us and watching over us and protecting us and guiding us and making sure that we will arrive at his destination when that day comes. Because Jesus promised that in every moment to be with us. And so come what may. If we feel that sense of fear, may we find the strength in God who is always near. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to send your son so that we could know what it means to, to experience your grace. That type of love that, that forgives all. That no matter what we've done, Lord, no matter where we may have stumbled or fallen or been unfaithful in the past, that, that your love and your grace is greater. We thank you for that, Father, that you're with us, that you never leave us. And that because of that relationship, when we have those moments of fear, that we can reach out to you and we can find your strength, we can find your courage. God, for those who are in this place right now, who may be going through difficult challenges in their own lives, I, I pray for them right now, Lord. 
pray for them, Father, that, that, that your presence, will, it is always with them, that it would feel especially close and intimate right now in this moment. Lord, that they would know that you are with them and that your strength and your courage is available to them. God, for those of us who perhaps need to, to understand that but then re-engage and to say, you are with me, Lord, but I need to be with you. God, may we make that profession and commitment today. May we come to know, Lord, that you have called us to a great work ahead that is for your glory, that is for your honor. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us and that you use us for your purposes. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.